welcome to Logos Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is Greek for word or message. Logos Live seeks to engage the Christian message in Melbourne. Yet today our show doesn't come from Melbourne, instead I'm in the UK. So this also means that we're not recording before a live audience, so today's episode's a little bit like Logos pre-recorded, but nonetheless, I'm sure that you'll enjoy what we have in store. And today we're in for a treat. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Rodney Holder. Uh, Rodney holds a D-Phil in astrophysics from Oxford University. He also worked for the Ministry of Defence. He returned to Oxford to gain a first-class degree in theology and then worked in parish ministry for many years. He has written many books exploring the interface of Christianity and science and was the course director of the Faraday Institute. Uh, Dr. Holder is a member of the International Society for Science and Religion at the Society of Ordained Scientists and the Science and Religion Forum. He joins me now. Welcome, Rodney. Thank you. You have a distinguished career in science. Can you tell us a little bit about your work, what you've done? Okay, well, um, I read mathematics first in Cambridge. What does um, it mean to read mathematics? You read out numbers, <laughs> do you? Is that what it's just the technical term for studying a subject. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah. um, so I did that in Cambridge. Um, and the great thing about uh, the, the course in Cambridge is that you can specialise in uh, mathematical physics, uh, theoretical physics, and in particular in the fourth year of the, the course, um, postgraduate year, you can do astrophysics and cosmology and general relativity, these wonderful subjects. So I did that. And then um, I went to Oxford to do a doctorate and postdoctoral research. My subject was accretion of intergalactic gas by the galaxy, which uh, sounds a bit esoteric. (laughs) I'd almost need to do a PhD on that sentence, (laughs) on that title. Uh, What what does that mean? What what happens? Well, intergalactic gas sort of permeates uh, galaxy clusters, and one of the things that uh, was wanting to be known was how much of it there was, because uh, an interesting question, we're talking now about the 70s, but the same question is still around. It's basically how much stuff there is in the universe, Mm. what its mean density is. This is an absolutely kind of critical question. And so that research sort of impacted on that. What what were the limits on on that? I mean, it turns out that uh, many years later, we now know that, well, there's there's nothing like enough normal matter to to satisfy all the equations and everything and the observations. So uh, basically 5% of the universe is normal matter and about um, 25% or more is um, some kind of unknown dark matter and then there's this mysterious uh, uh, dark energy which uh, is about 70%. So Mm. nobody really knows what these other things are. But so so that, that's the, the sort of big picture impact of mm. my research, though, of course, it was much more detailed in terms of what this intergalactic gas, gas was so, doing. But the important question that it's related to is to whether the universe is eternal, whether it's going to expand forever, mm. or whether there's sufficient stuff that gravity will pull it back and it'll... They crunch, crunch, yeah. Yes, yes. So, and, and in fact, um, what we now know I mean, is that um, um, it's really literally on, on the balancing point there, right. very close to the, the tipping, the, the, you know, the tipping. So it could point. crunch back or it could continue yeah, expanding yeah, forever, yeah. no one's quite sure. Yeah, well, well, that's right. Most people think it will expa- um, expand forever, yeah, but uh, it's still a, 
a bit of a moot point. There could, we could still be in a, a finite universe. Well, we could be in a finite universe now that also expands forever. Right. So we don't quite know for sure whether the universe is infinite or whether it's uh, finite. And indeed, that may be an impossible question to answer um, mm. because measuring the mean density of stuff for an infinite universe, <laughs> we, we can't This is very difficult to, to get a final number. We simply can't do it. But what... Um, one of the interesting things I've worked on more recently in terms of my interaction between theology and, and all this Big Bang stuff is the fine-tuning. Yeah. And uh, one, of the, one of those fine-tunings is the fact that the universe so, is so close to this knife edge. It needs to be, otherwise it will expand far too fast for anything interesting to happen, any galaxies to form, any stars to form and so on. Uh, or it will recollapse uh, far, far too quickly for anything interesting to happen you know, mm. in the space of months or, or years. You know, right? yeah. okay. now, of course, people argue about uh, there are a whole host of these particular fine, of, of fine tunings. That one, people may think they've solved by a theory called inflation, which which predicts that, you know, that the, 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 the mean density will be very near this critical value. Um, but on the other hand, it seems to me that whenever, if, if, if um, certain fine-tunings are solved in that kind of way, then the question is pushed up a level as to, well, why does that particular theory apply yeah. um, uh, that has that effect <laughs> that means that we can be here? You know? mm, yes. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll get to talk about mm, fine-tuning sure, in a second. Sure. That's what, uh, go back to astrophysics. Mm-hmm. Sounds very science fiction, you know, NASA, mm. spacesuits, you know, intergalactic. Is that what it's really like? No, no. Uh, astrophysics is... Uh, really about studying stars, galaxies, um, and um, uh, so there's an observational side to all of that with the, the looking at the light the spectra of the light that comes into us. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a whole story that I wasn't involved in, say, for example, to do with how uh, stars form and evolve. And we've got, you know, very good... Uh, uh, models of all that now, life cycles of stars, galaxies themselves, different kinds mm. of galaxies and how they form and evolve. Um, there's a lot of complex mathematics and right. uh, physics involved in all, in all of that. Uh, and there are uh, a lot of the um, data comes from satellites, um, from ground-based and space-based telescopes and so on. And then there's a lot of theoretical work going on as well, mm. um, and, and and the you know, the area that's particularly interesting from the point of view of um, uh, theology is is cosmology, which is that aspect of astrophysics which is talking about the universe as a whole, yeah. how it started, how it as a whole has evolved, and and so on and changed. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, again, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. I, I'm mm. keen to hear a bit more about your own personal story. Mm-hmm. So you're a Christian believer. Yes. So. What convinced you to become a Christian? Well, that, that was hearing the gospel, basically. Right, yeah. Preached, you know, and uh, preached very effectively and, and convincingly when I was uh, 18 and a new undergraduate here in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy called John Collins, very, he was very well known in, in England and more well, came, became more well known after later, you know, uh, associated with Holy Trinity Brompton and mm-hmm. so on, now retired. I've never seen him from that day to this, right. but he preached a terrific uh, sermon and um, uh, I, I gave my life to Christ. Right. Um, what, what was it about the, the message that 
was particularly attractive to you? Uh, well, it was uh, the person of Jesus, what he'd done, died for me and so on, and uh, died on the cross. And this is still, for me, absolutely fundamental. Mm. Uh, you know, more fundamental than any, anything else, mm. uh, any of this abstract stuff yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. to do with astrophysics and so on. That's the heart of, still the heart of it for me. Mm. I think it's important to say, though, uh, for, for, for someone who is a scientist, um, that um, one is concerned about evidence, mm. Um, and um, uh, one is concerned that, you know, uh, maybe a slightly emotional conversion event could be, you know, that could, uh, that could be, well, uh, maybe psychological or something. Yeah. Something yeah. inside yeah, the yeah. mind. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but uh, for me, it stood the test of time, and it's uh, nothing about my science, far from it, the opposite, mm. has confirmed everything about it. Uh, my uh, reading theology much later on has been much more confirming. My experience of worship and being involved with the church, um, the, the, everything has reinforced the faith rather than uh, undermined it yeah. as the years have gone on. You know, I was 18, now I'm 64. Um, uh, so, it's a lot of reinforcing. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah reinforcing um, and a greater and greater conviction. Um, mm. Yeah, and, but the heart, the heart of it for me is the cross mm. and, and the resurrection of Christ. Mm. Well, let's talk origins. It's your area yeah, yeah, of your speciality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so with current scientific mm. theories, tell us what happened. Well, the Big Bang is actually pretty well established as a theory. Mm-hmm. Um, you may or may not know, but it's the brainchild of a Roman Catholic priest. Goodness. Uh, whose <laughs> name was Georges Lemaitre. Yeah. And in fact, he was a member of St. Edmund's College in Cambridge, my very own college. Right, wow. Uh, in the year 1923 to 24, he came to work with Sir Arthur Eddington at the uh, University Observatory. And he was based at uh, St. Edmund's, where he could say daily mass as a priest and so on. And he was a great cosmologist. Now, what he did was uh, he solved Einstein's equations of general relativity. That's Einstein's equations... Uh, of gravity, wow. basically. So he would have probably won first prize in his class, I suppose, for doing that. Yeah, like, well, he, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was utter, utterly uh, remarkable. There was a Russian who did the same sort of thing mm. slightly earlier called Alexander Friedman, but who didn't think this applied to the universe. It was just a mathematical game. Right. Whereas Lemaitre thought, this is the way the universe is. And so he predicted the expansion of the universe. This was in 1927. That expansion was observed by... Edwin Hubble in 1929. Um, So in this first model that he came up with, it wasn't really a proper Big Bang model, but it was an expanding universe model from a a finite-sized, quite substantial-sized universe. But then in 1931, he came up with um, a model where the universe started from a very highly compact state and um, basically exploded into the Big Bang that we more or less know today. He called it the uh, primordial atom himself, and it was later called the Big Bang by a Cambridge uh, astrophysicist called Fred Hoyle. Mm -hmm. Uh, That may or may not have been a term of abuse, but certainly Hoyle didn't like it. Mm. Hoyle was an atheist, and he thought, goodness, if the universe had a beginning, then it might need God to create it. So that was a big problem. So he um, believed in a sort of a steady state? It, precisely, a, a precisely. Universe. He came up with an alternative called the steady state. Uh, this was in 1948. 
and uh, from about 1948 to 1965, these two theories were, were, were rivals. The interesting thing was that in 1948, um, a, a team um, in America made some predictions on the basis of the Big Bang. A difficulty that we had was to explaining where the helium in the universe came from. The universe is basically 75% hydrogen, 25% helium, with a tiny sort of fraction of other chemical elements. So that we are made up of. Yeah, so we're, the, we're really the, we're the, the really important ones. So, so we're, <laughs> yeah. we're the minority part of yeah. the universe. But um, basically, uh, on, the, on the basis of the Big Bang Theory, where nuclear actions could happen because the universe was very hot in its very first few minutes, um, uh, this helium could be made. And, and indeed, it was predicted um, uh, by, by that, this American team. Um, and um, Hoyle's method for making elements, uh, which is nuclear reactions in stars, which are also sites where it's incredibly, incredibly hot in the cores of stars, couldn't do that, couldn't make the helium could actually make all the other elements. Mm. Uh, and, and so, in fact, that was a nice synthesis um, uh, of where the chemical elements come from. But the other really important thing, of course, this is expansion, but of course the steady-state theory uh, explained that away, essentially, by saying new matter comes into the spaces between the galaxies as they move apart, and, lo and behold, at just the right rate, that the universe, well, for them, stays the, yes, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, the other major prediction of the uh, of, uh, Arthur and Herman was that if the universe started hot and dense, then uh, by various processes what would happen was that it would cool down and uh, after you know, 13, 14 billion years, it would have cooled to a temperature of around about five degrees above absolute zero. And the absolutely terrific thing was that this was observed in 1965 by Penzias and Wilson at Bell Telephone Laboratories in the US. Uh, they thought they'd got bird droppings in their antenna. What they'd got was the leftover noise radiation from the origin of the universe that wow. was a staggering discovery they had to be told that by other astrophysicists so. wow. they thought they had a mistake yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> they thought they would know it was noise in their <clears throat> anyway so that that was an absolutely staggering discovery the um the steady state couldn't couldn't explain that yeah um uh, but also the steady state was also already being undermined by another kind of observation if you think about it, if the steady state is correct, when you look at the universe, it should look the same. It should look the same yesterday, today, and, for, and forever. So if you look at distant uh, galaxies, you're looking at the universe as it was uh, you know, millions and billions of years ago. Uh, it should look different. It should look as though it's evolved. If there's a Big Bang, it should look identical. The distribution of galaxies should be the same in particular. Mm. And, and that was found not to be the case by various observations in the 50s here in Cambridge by uh, the radio astronomer Sir Martin Ryle. Uh, his earlier observations were a bit dodgy, questionable. But by the early 60s, they were really getting firmed up and it was lo looking like they were eliminating the steady-state theory. Mm. So it eventually died and the Big Bang reigned supreme from that time. Mm. Now, of course, uh, that isn't the end of the story because uh, that's the basic paradigm against which uh, 
all kinds of modern or speculative theories, uh, mm. which, which sort of modify it in various ways. Because mm. so basically you've alluded to a few times, it seems as though you've got two options. Mm. You have an eternal God who creates, or an eternal universe which remains. Yes. Um, so now that the scientific evidence points towards a, a universe with a specific starting time, people have now sort of suggested, well, perhaps there's an eternal multiverse. Yeah, which, sure. Which means, which means we don't need to worry about the fact that there is a, a creator yeah. because, well, the universe is just there. There's just lots and lots of universes kind of popping into existence all the time. Yeah, now, now, that, that, now there are all sorts of questions there because I would want to qualify the theological um, point here. Um, God can create a universe with an infinite history in time. Um, I mean, the verse you wanted to refer to... It's part of Logos Live is we refer to the, the yeah. Bible, the Logos. Yeah, yeah. Hebrews 11.3 is the one that we look at. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll read it out. Uh, by faith we understand that the universe was created by God's command, mm. so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. Mm. Yeah. Your, your reactions to that? Well, my reactions to that are that this is one of a very few verses in the Bible which uh, point to... A, a, a literal creation out of nothing. Mm, it's not creation. Yeah, exactly. It's not clear even in Genesis one that God isn't crea- isn't creating out of pre-existing uh, a pre-existing kind of chaos. Yeah. I mean, God is in utter control in con- contrast to Babylonian or even you know, Plato's kind of idea about that, mm. uh, where where matter is resistant to the creator, the craftsman who creates in Plato's Timaeus. Now. Whether there's an origin or not is an interesting point, and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas had something to say very much, sort of based on the Hebrews passage. He believed, he said, but you cannot establish that the universe had a beginning by reason. Um, He believed it by faith, okay, just as this verse says. Mm -hmm. But... Um, Aquinas said you can establish by reason that the universe needs a creator, nevertheless, because even, and and he has his five ways, his five arguments for the existence of God. And and basically, even if, and they're not to do with temporal origin, origin in time, but uh, they are much more to do with ontological origin. If there is an infinite sequence of cause and effect uh, that goes back you know, infinitely far in time, that needs God to create it and for it to exist mm. at all. A, yeah. fir- a first mover. Uh, precisely. Or an unmoved mover. Pre- precisely. It needs an unmoved mover. So uh, so in, 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 in some ways, even if there were an infinite universe, which is something that it's going to be very, very hard to establish... Then, then, then that is not 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 a problem for theology. And indeed, many theologians basically take that creation ex nihilo doctrine to mean that the creation is dependent on God's for its existence. Um, it's brought into existence uh, and upheld in existence moment by moment by for, by God. Some would say that the unmoved mover is the multiverse. Even if it were infinite, uh, this point about God needing to create it would, mm. would, would still apply, whether it's a multiverse or, or a single universe. However, there are some very powerful theorems at the moment produced by a great cosmologist called Alexander Vilenkin. Mm-hmm who has shown that under very general conditions, all the major models of cosmology that are on offer at the moment, including these multiverse-type models, backtrack to a beginning. 
Now, there, there was a very interesting event at the beginning of 2012 to celebrate Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday here in Cambridge. There was a symposium in his honour. Very sadly, Hawking was ill and couldn't make the symposium. He had one of his periodic uh, stays in hospital. Um, you know, he's obviously extremely, uh, extremely ill and extremely disabled. Yeah. I mean, he has a fantastic mind. There's no doubt about that. Um, but he sent a message from his hospital bed to the symposium saying, if the universe had a beginning, then it would need God. This is a big problem for atheist cosmologists, much less a problem, as I've just explained, for theologians. But anyway, Alexander Vilenkin was there at the symposium. He gave a lecture in which he said that all the evidence we have says that the universe has a beginning. So it's a tremendous irony. Wow. Um, so, for example, there are these models of inflation and universes which bubble up out of a sort of background space and you have eternal branching universes and so on. Well, perhaps into the future, but according to Vilenkin, they will backtrack at some time in the past. It might be on our time frame, uh, trillions of years, who knows, but mm. they will backtrack to, to, one, one yeah, beginning. to, to a beginning point. Mm. So that's where cosmology is at at the moment. That's where the evidence is mm. pointing. So by deduction... From Hawking's own theory, if Lincoln demonstrates <laughs> that well, the universe has had a beginning, Hawking's suggesting that the only explanation for the beginning is God. Then exactly, he's unwittingly suggested that uh, there is a God. So why doesn't he accept the implications of his own? I logic? don't know. I don't know. I don't know quite why he's really an atheist. Um, many of his colleagues are not. That's yeah. for sure. There are people in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics where he works here in Cambridge who are certainly not atheists. Let's just think a bit, a bit more about fine-tuning. Yes. It's another area of interest of yours. What, 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 tell us about what does it mean to be fine-tuned? Yes, um, uh, uh, this for me is my particular area. I've thought a lot about it. There are many, many examples of it. It's basically the way that the universe seems to have been set up at the Big Bang so that it gives you know, a smooth universe, a universe that's long-lived enough, that uh, you know, develops galaxies, stars and life, and there are many conditions needed for that. I, I mentioned one to do with the density. There's another to do with uh, the force that causes radioactive decay. It has to be just right so that you don't get all the hydrogen turned into helium. I was mentioning that earlier on. It's to do with also the strengths of the various forces of nature. There are four main forces, that radioactive um, force, there's the force that binds atomic nuclei together, there's the force between charged particles that causes electricity and magnetism, there's the um, gravity, of course. Okay, So these need to take the relative strengths that they do in order for the universe to give rise to life. And uh, a very famous example is due to none other than our atheist friend, Sir Fred Hoyle. In order to have life in the universe, you need carbon and you need oxygen. And these are made in the hot interiors of stars, as I was explaining earlier on. To make carbon is extremely difficult. What has to happen is you have to crash together three helium nuclei and you have to make them stick... The problem is that the intermediate element, two of them crash together, beryllium, is unstable, 
it lasts for 10 to the minus 17 of a second. A tiny, tiny fraction of a second. So you've got that fraction of a second to crash the third one on. This needs an enhanced effect to make that reaction go. It's called a resonance. And it's a value of an energy level in the carbon atom at just the right point. People didn't know that level. There was an energy level in carbon at that point. Hoyle predicted the precise value. Colleagues in the US discovered it, measured it. I got the Nobel Prize for it. Right. Uh, Hoyle sadly was left out. Uh, <laughs> Poor bloke. Yeah, I think it, he was not someone who made friends too easily. He'd already upset, I think, the Nobel Committee for various reasons. <laughs> Uh, but it was a bit unjust. And, 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 it is, and it actually, in St John's College Library here, there's a wonderful letter from Fowler, his colleague who made this discovery, saying how regrettable it was that Hoyle wasn't included in the, in, in the prize. Mm. He, he was really sad by it. He had to accept it, you know, on behalf of his institute and everything else, which I'm sure is, is correct. But he was very sad. Anyway, yeah. but um, to, to, to go on with this story... The um, the other thing you need, uh, the other element you need, is oxygen. Um, and to make oxygen, you need to crash another helium nucleus onto the carbon one, but you don't need to destroy all the carbon in the process because then you, you lost the opportunity. Carbon's the only molecule that'll make uh, the only atoms that'll make long, long chain molecules like DNA and so on, proteins, DNA, and all of the rest of it. Um, you need carbon. You need oxygen. So that means that there doesn't have to be an energy level. That would, that, um, the energy level in oxygen has to be much lower and so on. And uh, Hoyle made, that, made a prediction about that too. The, the significant thing is that when Hoyle made this discovery, he said that the universe is a put-up job. He says, a superintellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. That, and that is where the evidence took him. Mm. As a militant atheist, uh, broadcasting on the BBC in the late 40s, early 50s, saying religion is an illusion, it took him from that position to saying that there's a super intellect behind the universe. You know, He couldn't, of course, bring himself to use the word God. That's no. just a bit too, going a bit too far. But, you know, a massive change in, in, that, in, in him. Uh, and it's all to do with the, uh, the, 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 just the strength of the uh, strong force of nuclear physics that holds uh, atomic nuclei together. Uh, the, the strength of that, you adjust it by half a percent, you've lost it. Right. And then there are a whole host, a whole host of, these, of other coincidences. Coincidences or on, will, on purposes? Well, precisely. It depends yeah, on Precisely, your, precisely. Well, Rodney, thank you so much for your time here today. It's wonderful to have you on the show. And I'll close with the Logos, the word of the day, which is Hebrews 11.3, which says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by God's command, so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. Thanks once again. Thank you very much. Roger.